once again, it's time for the birdbath hour. Bring it up there, please. Saluting the history of birdbaths over the world. The birdbath through history. And finally culminating with the birdbath and you. We want to salute Bill Cullen tonight. <laughs> What's that for putting you in your place, you think finder? You don't know what a think finder is? Razzmatazz, Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're back on the air here. I'm sorry, I'd like to salute the... I'd like to uh, salute the... Uh, Oh, shucks, it just slipped my mind. Confounded, I had a whole program I was going to do, and now I forgot what it was. Shucks. Doggone it. Uh, can I have the yakety sax, please? Shucks. Oh, for crying out loud. Oh, gee whiz. Do you mind if I sit down here and do my thing? Yeah, let's get them pizzas going. Sinus problem, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Uh, speaking of uh, salutes, as we were earlier, uh, I would like to salute my old friend Marvin Kitman. You know, old Marv? He's a, <laughs> he's a television and radio type critic. And uh, Marvin once said to me uh, one of the most truthful things a critic has ever said. You know, I know Marvin. He's an old friend. See, and, and I'm sitting there, and, I, and we're sitting uh, in Chicago one day. And uh, Marvin's sitting there eating a cruller and uh, drinking rancid coffee, which is always a thing to keep a critic's ire up. And uh, <laughs> so we're sitting there. Yeah, that's actually what happened. We're sitting in this hotel, see? And Marvin said, I, wanna, I just want to tell you one thing. Boy, that television show, 
I'm telling you, the TV show you do, he says, the kids never miss a thing in my house. He's got these kids, you know. It's hard to believe that critics have kids, but he does, you know. And he says, uh, the kids never miss it. Oh, it's fantastic. I love it. I says, Marvin, do you realize what you're saying, Marvin? You're telling a performer, and you're a critic, that you dig his show. It's well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But uh, uh, anyway, I uh, just thought you'd like to know that. And I says, well, Marvin, you son of a gun, how come you didn't write that in your column? Dead silence. He sipped at the rancid coffee. He says, you know, I never thought of it. Yeah. Thank you, Marvin Kipman. <laughs> you know, that, but that, that makes him kind of human, see, uh, which is uh, something you always wonder about in the terms of critics, you know. That, uh, and uh, he has a system now of rating shows. Now, I would like to tell you how he does this. Uh, Marvin has, uh, he has a system of rating shows. You know how... Uh, these more pretentious critics on TV say, and now we're going to award three camera eyes to who shot John. You know, that kind of thing. Well, you see these guys are awarding camera eyes and so forth. Well, Marvin has his beer can award. And uh, I say this, uh, here, here's what it says. Uh, Specials reviewed are rated by the Kitman beer can system. Patent pending. One to six beer cans. The better the special, this is the way he reviews special, see, the smaller of number of beer cans it gets, as in real life. <laughs> the less engrossing a special is, the more often a viewer jumps up and says, hey, how about a beer, Jaime? <laughs> in other words, the more beer you drink during a special, the worse the special is, see? So if you get, if you get one beer can, that's a real great uh, special, see? If you get a two beer can special... Uh, you know, you know, and if you get a six beer can special, forget it. Turn on a police calls. It's much better. Well, uh, here's a here. <laughs> so that's kind of a nice, uh, kind of a nice rating system, isn't it? You know, he rates them. Now here's another system he's got. Uh, let's see. He's got the the uh, the Kitman antenna system. This is the uh, this is series. He uses that system to review series, and they're upside down antennas. You know, like an upside down thumb. When you say, boo, 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 you know, when, you are, when you're sitting in the Coliseum, you want to see the Lions win, you holler, boo, boo, and you put your thumb down. Well, anyway, it's a series review rated by the Kitman Antenna System. Four antennas is the highest honor, down to zero. In certain cases, minus antennas, those are the upside-down ones, are awarded. Uh, this means that the network owes the critic something for watching. Okay. Uh, he uh, gave uh, Bobby Gentry's Happiness Hour three upside-down antennas. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby Gentry. Okay. Now, here's uh, his antenna system, zero to four antennas. A broken antenna represents one half of an antenna. Tony Orlando and Dawn got two and a half antennas, Marvin Kitman. And uh, he has his famous Z system. This is really an interesting system, the Z system. This is the first in a series of previews of specials uh, that he's previewing. They will be rated by the well-known Kitman Z system, patent pending. The more Zs it gets from 1 to 10, the more apt the show is to put you to sleep. You know, you've seen cartoons, shows a guy with a Z is over his head there, okay? Frankenstein, by the way, starring Robert Foxworth and Susan Strasberg, got three resounding Zs. The word resounding. <laughs> I agree. I saw that. What a turkey, Rooney. So, any, the rule of Shepherd's rule of thumb, anything starring almost any actress named Susan, tune to the next channel.
any actress. There's maybe six, seven hundred actresses named Susan. Wouldn't you agree? How many Susans are there? Just name of your, you know, how many? And, and, and oh, another, another, uh, another point. Any comic, any time you tune in a show that has any comic on it named Jackie, forget it. Tune to the next channel. There are over twelve hundred comics named Jackie. You agree? And they're all the same. You know. Uh, <laughs> Loudmouth. Uh, hey, what's that? If, uh, what's that you're eating out there? I thought it was your nose. Is that a banana you're eating? You know, that kind of stuff. That's a typical Jackie Jackie type uh, line. Oh, oh I, I, that brings up Shepard's uh, system. And uh, any of you who are uh, in touch with Mr. Kitman, place this in front of his desk, please, if you will. Shepard has now instituted his new service, which will be on his show from time to time, sporadically, as we get up the guts to do it, and as we get over the inertia to do it, too. That's Shepard's now, and, and it's getting the talk of the industry, Shepard is going to be the first person to institute a critic who does nothing but review critics. How's that for a new idea? Uh, by the way, this is not done. This is a, this is a, this is a very uh, a dangerous uh, course to embark upon. And yet, Shepard's rating system will be this way. Shepard will read a review, see, of any uh, type of critic. Clive Barnes, you name it. Marvin Kithman. Charlie Ossenschlager and his Staten Island Onion Growers Weekly, all these various critics. And Shepard will rate his critics either from one to four raspberries. Now, how's the raspberry sound? <laughs> That's the raspberry. Okay, an angry sound. <laughs> Is that a better raspberry? Do you like that one? <laughs> how's that? Okay, so uh, Shepard reviewing uh, Marvin Kitman's, uh, let's say, review of... Uh, of the Buck Owens Hour. Uh, now, he reviewed the Buck Owens Hour with two Zs, three, un three upside-down antennae, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, one uh, Marvin Kitman yawn. Well, Shepard is reviewing that column with two raspberries. And here's to you, Kitman. <laughs> two raspberries are given to Marvin Kitman's review due to the fact that Marvin Kitman doesn't know a damn thing about country-western music and is not qualified to review it. How's that for a just laying it out there? Okay, Kitman, handle that. And while Kitman is handling that, I think it's time for us to do a, uh, one of our uh, absolutely unforgettable commercials. All set? This is uh, W.O.R. in New York, which mentally is near Dubuque, too. And, uh... <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, W.O.R. is, uh, uh, if anything, is... Uh, is... Uh, it's it's like a it's like a perennial commuter. You ever had that feeling about the stations? Uh, you know, just the general feeling you get that this station is continually on a train to uh, someplace like like Patchogue. You know, <laughs> endlessly. No, it's just uh, this is a uh, you know, it's, it's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way it is. You know, like if, by the way, speaking of commuters, I have a fantastic story on commuters. Um, no, I'm not a commuter. No, no, not me. You can't imagine me being a commuter, can you? I mean, do I have that look? No way. You see me sitting there hour after hour reading the Reader's Digest, drinking martinis out of paper cups. Are you crazy? Well, uh, <laughs> this is a, well, you know, that's the way they think. But uh, here, if you think that you're, you've seen some really fantastic commuters, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, what is it, the LIE, the Long Island Railroad, that has that insignia of the commuter dashing the leap on the train? Uh, you've seen that the, the road of the dashing commuter. Well, if you think you have seen some commuters, friends, 
Have you ever, and, and, and this, this, by the way, is also connected with, with the whole phenomenon of evil can evil. Incidentally, I'd like to make a comment about evil can evil. That woke you up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting so tired of, <clears throat> I'm beginning to believe seriously, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm beginning to believe seriously, and this is just a serious remark. Not a, not a funny, but yet it is funny because because uh, humor is involved in almost anything we do in our life. That uh, the great walking around, for want of a better name, Bubis Americanus, is the true avant-garde of our 20th century. Now this was not always true in the, in the let's say the 19th century, even the earliest part of the 20th century, or the 17th century. In other words, the avant-garde was led. The avant-garde was. What is the avant-garde? The advanced guard. The avant-garde was almost invariably the intellectual who, you know, he'd see some great thing. He perceived things deeper than Bubis Americanus or Bubis uh, uh, La Belle Francaise, you know, whatever the country was. He led the society, right? Well, now, if you're going to take the expression avant-garde as meaning who leads the society, it's all been reversed in our century, in our country. In other words, Bubis Americanus is leading the society. And I'm going to tell you what I mean, exactly what I mean. That in the early days of the 20th century, uh, let's say up to, not, uh, when I say early days, up through the, let's say the early 20s, that was the early 20th century, let's face it. Up through the mid and even the late 20s and even through the 1930s, I'm talking historically, all the way up through that period, who followed pro football? Pro football. Well, if, if, if you're sitting out there dumbly saying who, I'll tell you, Bubis Americanus. The college man, in other words, the man who went to the universities, the, uh, the intellectual, wouldn't be seen at a professional football game. The thing to be seen at was the Yale-Harvard game or the Princeton-Dartmouth game. In other words, that was that was a historical fact, and 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 here the non-college guy, you know, the guy who never went to college, you know, the guy who graduated from uh, the uh, the Steno School, uh, you know, or some place like that. He he didn't have any uh, he didn't have any loyalties to any alma mater, so he went down and he went to went wherever it was in Green Bay, whether it was in in the Canton, Ohio, or Chicago. He went down and watched the mercenaries play. He loved the game, but he didn't care whether or not it was Yale or Harvard or Pitt, Cairn, Pennsylvania University. As long as there were a bunch of guys running into each other, carrying a chunk of uh, leather in their hand. You know? Right. Okay. So, now, uh, years went by, and those guys sat out there in the cold and the wind and, and took the uh, insults <laughs> of the sport page until finally, all of a sudden, in the, in the mid-20th century, it all turned around, and now... Uh, George Plimpton would never miss a, uh, a Jet versus Miami Dolphin game. Now, he wouldn't have gone to see that, you know, <laughs> just a few years ago. In short, who's leading who there? All right, now I'll give you other examples of that. Just a few weeks ago, what, uh, what did New York Magazine, which prides itself on being an you know, intellectual leader of New York, New York Magazine had a whole thing about the glories of, uh, let's say, chain hamburger food. Like a McDonald's, like a, the a Big Boy, Precious Big Boy, you know, and, and Geno's, and and uh, all these great places. Who was eating at these places almost exclusively? Did any other type of eating matter? 
good old Bubris Americanus. He was down there long before it was discovered by gay police. <laughs> now, and the, th the thing that's fascinating about it is that when the intellectual, or what, it, well, you know, the guy that considers himself an intellectual, let's put it that way, whenever he takes this stuff over, he pretends that it's a new discovery, it's a whole new thing, it's a whole new ball game. It's all it, 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 that, the, that the guy that he crowded out of the seat there, uh, who was Archie Bunker. The guy that he crowded out of the seat, he never mentions <laughs> you know, that, that Archie Bunker's been going to this place for years and, uh, and was put down by that very same guy a few years before for going there. You know, and uh, so there are other areas of, of life. Who first discovered rock? Are you trying to tell me that rock was discovered by Leonard Bernstein? Are you kidding? Are you trying to tell me that rock was discovered by the undergraduates at Princeton? Are you kidding? No way. In the very early 50s, the, the, true, the true slobber sat down there and yelled out his guts at Elvis Presley, who was the beginning of it. See, why you don't think any, any uh, elegant Princeton man of that period would have gone to see Elvis Presley? He was going down to see Thelonious Monk. That's where he was in those days. He was spending his time cheering uh, Dave Brubeck. And, uh, I mean, Pat's down. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> but what, who was by, you know, he wouldn't have considered it. And so, of course, as time went on, and old Bubus Americana sat out there, you know, eating his, uh, eating his Tootsie Rolls and munching away on his big boy hamburgers, you know, with the three buns and all that, sitting there and drinking his yoo -hoo. Uh he, he was actually leading the way. Uh, so perhaps we have really come into the century of the common man, where the common man leads the avant-garde at all times. So you have to then make a few suggestions, a few, a few predictions based on that trend. Do you, do you agree with what I'm saying, you know? That, uh, now I'll give you another example. Who was it who originally wore blue jeans? Right. Bubis Americanus. Uh, truck driverus Route 66s. <laughs> he was, he, you know, you wouldn't, I mean, you don't think for one minute that a, that a Yale would go down to the Army-Navy store to buy anything other than, say, a Swiss Army officer's knife. Uh, that's about all he would be interested in getting. Now, I, I, I'm going to suggest other things. Who do you think led in the whole concept today of camping? You better believe it, friends. <laughs> that, that, that the guys that used to lurk in the Sears Roebuck sporting goods department, you know, these, these were always the same guys. They had the crew haircuts, you know, and uh, smoked camel cigarettes and, and uh, drove their three-holer Buick around. And uh, they were always buying it because, first of all, it was all uh, that came out of their 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 uh, their desire to camp came out of almost always economic necessity. In other words, you went you went camping because you could not afford to go to this elegant uh, resort down in the Bahamas. Uh, you could not. Uh, this is where the college kid of that period was going. He was spending his time on the beach at, at Fort Lauderdale, and uh, you know, lounging around in the forty dollar a day motels. So, uh, all of a sudden, Bubus Americanus can no longer get on the very campgrounds he pioneered. Why? There's 26,000 kids eating granola, all gathered <laughs> by the millions, say, who, who, who think that you know, this is the new thing, camping. Well, as a matter of fact, if he, if he cares to look at what Bubus Americanus has been doing, he started a camp roughly about 1710 uh, and has been camping ever since. Now, I'm going to suggest a few other things that, uh, that Bubus Americanus is, uh, is has been doing for years, which will be discovered by uh, the avant-garde and will become a very big thing. They have not yet discovered fishing. They will. 
I, I predict this. They will. Because fishing isn't the same as hunting, you see. Uh, fishing fishing is, is, has got a whole different ethic, you see. And, and so the, the camper will go out there. He knows that seafood is good for you. It's, it's uh, organic food and the whole rest of it. And uh, he's going to wind up tying his own flies. And then it will be a whole new discovery. George Plimpton will suddenly discover fly fishing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and old Boobus has been out there uh, flailing away at the streams uh, since uh, before Isaac Newton. Uh, Isaac Newton was the first Plimpton, in case you're curious who Isaac Newton was. <laughs> he was the first Plimpton. <laughs> and he came across, you know, <laughs> what's the surprise of hell out of the guys that were fishing for the days of the cavemen. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this is all part of our time. Now, uh, now, I'll give you another example that's beginning to happen. Have you noticed that all of a sudden, uh, American, uh, let's say the Eastern faith, uh, we'll use that word, uh, which is, uh, you know, a catchphrase, doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean anything more, any more than mid-America means. Middle America has, is a nonsensical meaning. Uh, are you talking geographically? Are you talking philosophically? What are you talking here, you know? Uh, Middle America, you know, it's a term of snobism. And, uh, but, uh, and again, an, a, a fate east, the a fate east is another one of those non-meaning terms. Uh, but it, it is a nice catchphrase, and uh, uh, Nora Ephron likes to use it, and, and uh, you know, let, let them have their fun, the mid-American hard hat and all the rest of it. So, uh, by the way, the term hard hat has disappeared. Yeah, that was the term of the 60s. That doesn't, uh, you never hear that anymore. Hard hat is gone. The term hippie is gone, too. That's, that's Any time you hear people using the term hippie, you know that uh, they're based solidly in 1963. Uh, <laughs> it's like, like I hear guys keep using the phrase hep. By the way, that's going to come back. Now, the, the, speaking of Slavus Americanus, uh, for years he's been describing things as, hey, boy, is that ever a neat-looking car, Charlie? Now that's been picked up by the Ivy League. And the Ivy League is using the phrase neat at all times. Things are described as neat. Uh, again, of the avant-garde, which is the true avant-garde, is Ed down on uh, Alley 4 uh, at the uh, at the Rizzuto uh, Barra bowling lanes. He's been describing things as neat for a long time. Now, you know, it's beginning to uh, filter upwards. See, in short, we have a mobile society, an intellectually mobile society, but curiously enough, it's mobile downwards. Uh, most societies used to be mobile upwards, and we were up to a point uh, that began to change about 1890. Now it's mobile downwards, so that whatever the slob admires at any given time is what ultimately will become the norm of that society. Now let's take uh, the most recent uh, move. Let's take let's take pornography. Now I am not I'm, I'm not making any value judgments on pornography. I'm merely saying though who many years ago would squat above the American Legion Hall at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, viewing 8-millimeter films starring guys running in and out of uh, various bedrooms with large bucks and very willing ladies. Who did this? Was it, the, was, it the, uh, was it George Plimpton? Was it the, was it the intellect? Was it the Princeton undergraduate? No. You're right. Bubus Americanus was sitting down there with his can of beer in one hand and his American Legion hat on his head and uh, he had what he was called what was called a smoker again once again Bubus Americanus was a good 20 years ahead <laughs> of the way it would go now it's very embarrassing see for, for, uh, for you know for a guy that spent all of his time skulking around uh, uh, the you know the upstairs uh, part of the pool room where they held the American Legion meeting that weekend watching the films 
uh, it's very embarrassing for him to now see that it's now playing a cinema tour, the same film, and there's 7,000 people lined up, and it costs $8 a seat to see it, and it's reviewed by the New York Times. Well, <laughs> an evocative, very touching, serious attempt to investigate and explore man's eternal loneliness through erotic pleasure. Uh, this is a, you, know, you, you can hear it. Instead of just coming out and laying it on the line like old Boobus Americanus, hey, take it off! That's about all he'd say. That was his only expression of joy and pleasure. Or, holy smokes, look at the blonde, Aki! You know, that uh, uh, was a little more honest. But it'll come to that. I, I suspect that eventually we're going to have the boob critic. That's the next movement. Uh, and and uh, he, he'll have to come. We've already seen the beginnings of that. Uh, Jerry Breslin, Jimmy Breslin, is that his name? That large, loudmouth type guy that sits there and yells during uh, various uh, television. This is, a, this is a, the beginning of the Archie Bunker School of Criticism. Hey, you know what they're doing down to the city hall today? That bum A-beam? This is a, you, you've, uh, you've seen the critics, uh, that type of criticism. Uh, so eventually, I'm predicting that the, the, the boob critic will begin to become part of the world of the critic. Uh, do you see that coming? No, all right. I'm, uh, have you noticed that the New York Times all of a sudden has discovered the uh, something that's been going on for, uh, well, almost uh, 70 years. Uh, they've discovered the Indianapolis 500. Well, I was, uh, you know, I was astounded. They sent me out there to cover it this year. You saw it. Well, I, I congratulate the Times on suddenly discovering something that's been around for a long time. But uh, they used to cover it, a little thing in the back, you know, Indy 500. Uh, somehow that had a connotation. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion. The next big discovery that will be made by... Uh, uh, by the Plimpton world and that whole crowd will be the Daytona 500, Richard Petty, David Pearson, and Bobby Allison. Will Cale Yarborough will suddenly become folk heroes. And, uh, yeah, they're going to edge out Jackie Stewart. They're going to edge out uh, Jackie X, And uh, suddenly that's going to be a big thing. And we're, there's going to be a book that Plimpton will write, I Drove, a, uh, a Formula One at Daytona. <laughs> you know, there he was, wheel to wheel with Richard Petty. I could see it coming. And, it, and once again, Slavos Americanus has been sitting there watching Detroit Iron race around the ovals since the almost time immemorial. He will be crowded out of his seats because immediately the seats will become extremely expensive, hard to get, and uh, Richard Petty will move to, to Greenwich, Connecticut, and to hell with all those guys living in Rabbit Hash, South Carolina again, you know. <laughs> so this is this has all got to happen. Do you, do you see it happening? Now, are you are you curious to some other discoveries that will be made? All right, Shepard is predicting some here. Uh, I mean, it's not that it's not that it really matters one way or the other, but uh, I suggest that the time is not too far off, and there's already signs. Uh, when the avant-garde, the, the guys that pride themselves on the avant-garde, will suddenly discover the roller derby. That's hard to believe. <laughs> but I see, I see signs. Now, I may be wrong in that, but I see signs. Uh, for example, one of the things that the slob for years went to, and he, he, nobody else would even go near it. No one. Forget it. You couldn't, 
Norman Men, Leroy Neiman, are you, do you think these guys would go to see... you think any of those guys would go to see men who are paid to play basketball, play basketball? Are you kidding? <laughs> Why, there was time not very long ago when, when uh, you could have bought any seat at the Garden at any Nick game for maybe 15, 20 cents. Do you agree, yeah? And it was, now it seems almost incomprehensible. But, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it was, uh, the minute it's discovered by, uh, by Kurt Gowdy, <laughs> then it becomes a whole different ballgame. And the guys who, you know, went down and sat and watched the professional basketball for years are now suddenly pushed out. They're, they're the guys. Have you ever noticed when you go past the garden and there's a great big crowd of guys milling around out there? Well, that's the guys who used to be inside. Uh, you, you notice that other crowd with the $700 bells uh, going in and all? Well, that's the guys that used to laugh at uh, pro basketball. Now they're in there, see? Well, now, <laughs> this is beginning to happen uh, with, with hockey. Uh, hockey was a slob sport for years in America. It, it, it really was. You know, guys running, uh, skating around and bashing each other and trying to hit that little puck. It's a very simple-minded game, actually, when you think about it. It's, it's shinny is what it is. Uh, shinny, and uh, I suspect uh, that uh, that uh, of course that will go that way. Now, uh, uh, are you interested in some other things? All right, we see it all around us today. It, it, who went to see? I would like to suggest who went to see when they were new. Who went to see Dick Powell movies? You don't think for one minute that the critic of the New York Times seriously went to see those, do you? That's right. Good old Bubus Americanus, <laughs> including my mother, was sitting down there with her copy of Photo Play, watching Eleanor Powell <laughs> and all those. She loved this stuff. Oh, my God. I mean, my mother never missed a Hollywood movie, or rather, a Hollywood musical, all the time when I was a kid. She was always going to see uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. This was her whole big thing. If she couldn't see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, she went to see Dan Daly and Eleanor Parker. Now, I might add that those, the, uh, those, were, those were put down universally. <laughs> you know what is it? You know, that's, uh, uh, the, the movies that the critics were really uh, digging, apparently, at that time, anything by John Garfield. Oh, yeah, but you don't see any John Garfield film festivals. You see Dan Daly film festivals today, right? Uh, thousands of them are going to see That's Entertainment, whatever they call this thing, you know, it's down here. Well, who's going to see that? Well, all the people who read New York and... All the people who read the Village Voice, the very people who would have been putting my mother down till hell froze over for going down there, sitting there and cheering Dan Daly or Judy Garland. Are you aware that Judy Garland films were the favorite of the boobs when they were really big? You didn't know that? Right, Al? Right. <laughs> so the boob, the boob really, all I'm saying here is there's no such thing as a boob. In other words, the true avant-garde is generally just a walking-around guy who doesn't know why he goes to see a thing. He just digs it. Artlessly, he digs it. And, uh, and there is some truth in the fact that, that the great mass of people ultimately have a curious truth in them. How do you like that for an affirmation of the walking-around guy? It's true. <laughs> I mean, I, fi I find this uh, is so... Uh, you know, so 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 many times it's come around in my life. For for example, now let's let's take what is the current craze, the, the sad current craze, of uh, so-called nostalgia for say old radio shows. 
you don't think for a moment that the avant-garde of the period actually listened to the shadow, do you? Do you? Oh, are you kidding? This was this was the slobs medium for, for you know for, that was it. I mean that was the and it was always thundering editorials by guys like Gilbert Seldes who were the critics of the period. When are they going to get away with this? Get get rid of this terrible stuff like the Lone Ranger and all this terrible awful stuff like uh, the Shadow and all this <laughs> you know and, and put on the really serious things like Tallulah Bankhead doing Electra. Uh, you know they were always calling for that kind of stuff. Well, the slob wouldn't sit still for that for five minutes. Say. Uh, my suspicion is, though, basically, there is not one of us, no matter who we are and no matter what our intellectual pretensions are, that does not have a strong streak of slavis running right through him. And, and let's put it this way, that ultimately it'll come out. I mean, you'd have to have no glands at all not to enjoy a Big Mac. You agree? <laughs> now... Admitting that you enjoy Big Mac is the same, you know, it's a, that's a different different ballgame. It's a different problem. But in the case of, of old Slavis, he doesn't care about admitting it. Hey, John, let's go down and get a Big Mac, huh? How about it, huh? How about a quarter pound of cheese? And, and that's, you know, he, he just goes on and, and scoffs the stuff. And uh, in the end, that's what he, you know, what he does. He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't make any pretensions. By the way, the intellectual has recently discovered beer. Uh, well, uh, that's, that's a whole other... Uh, a whole other kettle of fish, as the Slavists would say. And while we're on the subject of... Uh, <laughs> by the way, the Slavists always loved commercials. And uh, today, it's becoming very in now to study commercials. Would you hit one of our better ones, please? Now, uh, how did I come to this uh, conclusion? Uh, the, first, uh, the first conclusion uh, that came, that uh, hit me, uh, that the, that the Slavists... That the whole thing has been reversed. Uh, that this theory... Uh, uh, pop art... It's a great example of uh, it began. This is when it began. Pop art. You know, you remember pop art? Do you remember old pop? He used to walk around here and sell those hot dogs and you know, had those Campbell soup cans. Do you remember old pop? Remember him? Uh, Andy Warhol, classic example. Well, pop art was really the art of know nothing. Uh, in short, the aesthetics of advertising, basically. In short, a giant picture of a juicy hamburger done with absolute uh, fidelity to the original vulgar model. Uh, the vulgar model usually painted out in front of Al's Beanery on Route 7 or Route 3. You know, you remember the, the guys used to go around and paint these great big signs of hamburgers. Well, the day that that hamburger sign entered the Museum of Modern Art was the day that Slavis Americanus and Slavis Buvis began to have his own particular aesthetics beginning to be appreciated. Now, one of the first, uh, one of the first signboards of that kind that you saw that, that you might say it was pop art. I remember when I was a kid, <laughs> I was oh, I was about eight or nine, maybe even younger than that. There was a vacant lot down the street, uh, maybe seven or eight miles down the street, but it was a vacant lot, all right, a big vacant lot, had a lot of weeds and tin cans and old busted up uh, automobile bodies in it. Some guy came along there one day and started to build something. He started to build this uh, tremendous edifice, and it got higher and higher. And to everyone's uh, total, uh, you know, total astonishment, uh, fantastically amazed, it was a four-story high ice cream cone he built. A gigantic ice cream cone. And, yeah, it was an enormous ice cream cone, four-story high. And it had this great big ball of ice cream on the top. 
and it was uh, it was a three like a three ball of ice cream. It had the vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. It's a tremendous thing. And uh, down at the bottom, he had he had little windows, and you could come and buy ice cream there. That was the whole point of it. So it was a it was a gigantic ice cream stand. Well, of course, this absolutely flipped the slops. They loved it. Every slob in the world went down there and just dug this thing safe. Well, immediately the newspapers thundered out that this unbelievable eyesore has suddenly uh, sprouted out of the countryside and should be torn down immediately. Aesthetics are ruined. Well, years went by, see. And the slob kept going down there buying ice cream and loving it. Do you know, right this minute now, among all the various influential literary journals of the Midwest, there is a campaign called Save the Ice Cream Cone. They're trying to protect the ice cream cone from what they call the bulldozers of the vandals. <laughs> oh, God, when will it ever stop? I guess it never will. That's what makes it so funny, and that's what makes it so exciting. If it stopped, we'd all just sort of stand around, you know, and scratch. So, uh, let's say, viva la turmoil. Viva la contrast. Uh, viva la uh, uh, contradictione. Uh, viva la what the hell. Uh, viva la George Plimpton. Viva la Marvin Kipman. Stick in there, man. Keep them old fights going. Let's go. Woo! This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation, you hear?